Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Louis Torres. How do you find a needle in a haystack? Well, I'll give you a, an answer in just a moment. How many of you have heard of that phrase before? And with denominations, <coughs> pardon me, the last uh, survey that, that uh, I checked on from the uh, Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary was that there were 39,000 different Christian denominations. Now, the update shows 41,000. So from the year 2008 to the year 2018, 41,000. And really, to be honest with you, uh, they're having a hard time actually pinning it down because of the constant splitting that's taking place. And there's splits and splits and splits all the time. So when you think of 41,000 different Christian denominations, then how can that be when you only have one Bible? And so, here's a haystack. Where's the needle? Can you pick out the needle? Yes or no? Is there a needle here? Huh? Yeah. There it is. Can you see it? There it is. See that? But if I go backwards, you see it? See it there? Okay. The simplest way to find a needle in a haystack is to find something that has drawing power. Has what? Drawing power. And that is a magnet. That's correct. The simplest way of finding the true church is to have someone withdrawing power. And who is that? It is Jesus. So let's consider what the Bible says about why there are so many different denominations. First of all, in the book of Jude, verse 1, chapter 1, it says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation... It was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly do what? Contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Now please understand that it doesn't say contend for the faiths, plural, but it says for the faith, singular. Which means then that according to the scriptures, all the Bible writers, especially the New Testament writers, knew that there was not a many faiths, but that there was only one specific faith. And that faith was the one that was delivered unto them. Now, you should know that Jude happens to be one of the brothers of Jesus. In fact, I should tell you this also, that he happened to be uh, uh, a... a at that time, was not a believer when Jesus was um, doing his ministry, but later on, he turned to be a believer. 
So was James. Paul wrote, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And the focus of this verse is not necessarily speaking about uh, numerical, but rather signaling out the fact that there's only one true Lord, one true faith, one true baptism. Which means then that the Bible actually underscores the reality that there's only one true faith. So let's trace this faith from the beginning. Now, I'm using the word faith in, in the sense of a set of beliefs. Because the word faith also means a trusting. A what? A trusting. So, in the beginning, before man fell... There was only one faith. And after man fell, there was still one faith. But something happened. There was a division in that one faith. The ones that followed the Lord from the beginning had two distinct qualities. One was that they trusted God and they obeyed him. The problem with Eve was that she failed to trust, <coughs> pardon me, she failed to trust and what else? And to obey. Honey, I think that bottle of water, just throw it to me, maybe I can catch it. <coughs> well, she has one over here. Thank you. She's a good thrower, by the way. All right, so... One true faith in the beginning. And there were two qualities. They had to trust God, and they showed that trust by their obedience. Okay? And the problem with Eve was that she did not trust and obey. Both of those qualities start out right from the beginning. That must be found in the true believers of God. And we can find these two qualities all the way through the scriptures. Let's look at it. When Abel obeyed and trusted God, he offered the sacrifice representing the Messiah that would come. But his brother Cain did not accept the provisions that God had made through the sacrifice. So rather than obeying God, he decided to do his own thing. He decided to establish his own way of offering rather than what God requested. And God said to Cain, uh, why are you doing this? If you do what is right, then you shall be well. But if you don't, there's sin that lieth at thy door. Well, we know then that the first religious persecution took place right after the Garden of Eden. Cain killed his brother because there was a difference in belief. In what? In belief. And so now you had two divergent faiths. And God then had to do everything possible to maintain that genuine faith because now there was greater danger that that faith that had been given to the believers would be contaminated by the evil one. And he did succeed in contaminate, contaminating it 
because uh, we know that, that Cain, after he slew his brother, was uh, exiled from the presence of God, and he went out and started his own lifestyle. However, there was a, a concern by Mother Eve about the Messiah, because she knew that the promise had been given that the seed would come through the woman. And she anticipated that Abel was that seed that would be, be the Savior. But however, after Abel was killed, then she realized that Abel was not, and she definitely knew it was not Cain. And so the Bible says, and Adam knew his wife again, and she bare the son and called his name, what? Seth. For God said, she have appointed me, what else? Another seed instead of Abel whom Cain slew. In other words, she, she understood and, and had the hope that Abel would be the promised seed that had been promised. But when he died, she lost hope. But when she had another son, she regained hope because she said, God had provided me another seed instead of Cain. And to Seth and to him also there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. Then began men to call upon what? The name of the Lord. So you can see there very plainly that even though there were two boys who grew up in a religious home, a spiritual home, one went one way and the other one maintained himself faithful to that which had been given to him and delivered to him. And that particular set of beliefs or faith that God had given to uh, Seth, he then shared it with his offsprings and man began to call upon the name of the Lord. And it was through then Seth that came a, a certain person called Noah. So you have Enoch, Methuselah, and finally you have Noah. The true faith was not to become a stink. God has ever preserved a what? A remnant to serve him. Adam, Seth, Enoch, Methuselah, Noah, Shem, in unbroken line, had preserved from age to age the precious revealings of his will. So, you have then truth carriers. What do you have? Truth carriers. You, all of us are carriers of something. Of carriers of what? Something. Isn't that true, Doc? Yes, we all carry something. And so, God then had so desired that man be saved that he must continue to keep genuine that which could save people. And that was the knowledge of the true God and the faith that God had given through Seth. And so all the way down to uh, Noah and finally on the other side through Shem. And the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark, for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. God was keeping the genuine faith alive. And finally in Noah, there was a, the preaching of the end that would come. And those that believed got into the ark. Those that did not believe did not go into the ark. And so if you were inside, you were what? And if you were outside, you were lost. And friends, it didn't matter... If you came up with whatever set of beliefs you wanted to come up with, you had to be in the ark to be saved. And please remember this. There were not many arks. There was only one ark that provided salvation. How many? 
one. Those then that were saved followed God and obeyed him. And so the two identifying marks of the genuine believers are again uh, visible in those who believe. Let me show you about Abraham. Notice what it says. Genesis 26 verse 5. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Abraham was one of those who chose to follow the God of heaven. In fact, Abraham was the first one to be called a Hebrew. A what? A Hebrew. The Bible says, by faith for Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for inheritance, obeyed, and he went out not knowing where he went. So he trusted in God, and he obeyed God. Those two distinctive marks you'll find all through the scriptures concerning the, the true ones. And there came one that had escaped and told Abram the what? The Hebrew. This is the first mention of the word Hebrew or the name Hebrew in the Bible. So Abraham was a Hebrew. Now, through Abraham then came other Hebrews. And so the followers of God who came through Abraham, of course Isaac and Jacob, were now called Hebrews. And uh, Jacob, unfortunately, um, sidestepped for a while. But God did not abandon his children, nor the seed of promise, because they were to bring the Messiah to be the Savior of the world. So when Jacob then deceived his father and fled for his life, it was then that he was returning back home after a long pilgrimage uh, away in Haran, where uh, he got married, etc. And just as he deceived, he got deceived. As uh, the saying says, what goes around comes around. So he did it to his father, and his father-in-law did it to him. Well, Jacob then, on his way back home, uh, had a very strange encounter with the Lord. And he wrestled with the Lord. And the Bible says then that his name was changed from supplanter, which was his given name, or deceiver, which is what Jacob means. But now he becomes real. He becomes what? Real. And that's why I, I like the word is real. And so, he becomes a real believer because he determines that he's going to do right no matter what after his encounter with the Savior. And then his children now were called Israelites. So, now you have two names. You had a name Hebrew. So, they were still Hebrews. But now they added a new name. What is it? Israel. So God now is identifying his, his remnant. And by the way, the word remnant, you'll see it later on. God is identifying the remnants as people who he has placed his spirit in and who in turn trust and obey him. So the remnant is not just a piece of the carpet that remains. The remnant is a selected individual. A what? A selected 
I'm glad that God is not just waiting for leftovers. <laughs> I'm glad that God selects, what do you say? I don't want to be a leftover. I want to be chosen because God looks upon me and has mercy and calls me by my name. What do you say? And so from Adam to Moses, we can track the, the church or the believers or the genuine faith. And even in the wilderness, notice that it says, this is he that was in the church in the wilderness. So the, the Israelites then, God called it a church. The people together now were called a church. The reason for it is that the actual word church means the called out ones. What does the word church mean? The called out ones. Did God call Israel out of Egypt? What's the answer? Yes. yes. And so now they were the called out ones or the church. And God put in them, in Israel, those wonderful principles of life that they were now to share with the whole world. And now there was a better chance for more to be saved because there were more of them to spread the gospel throughout the world. And it's interesting that the reason why God placed the Jews, which were later called Jews, or the Israelites or the Hebrews, in Israel is because that was to be the center of the world. In those days, if you wanted to go to Africa, you had to walk through Israel. If you wanted to go to Europe, you had to walk through Israel. Either south or north, you had to go through Israel. And the purpose of it was so that people could find the God of heaven and the principles that God had given to them. So we then continue on from Moses all the way to Christ. We find then an unbroken chains all through from Jacob. Then you have the 12 patriarchs and from them uh, you finally have the 10 or should I say the 12 tribes of Judah established in the, the land of Canaan. And uh, unfortunately, however, they begin to uh, dissemble and they begin to become unfaithful, but they still remain a faithful remnant. If what? A faithful remnant. And that's why you find people like Daniel and you find people like David, people who uh, recognize that there was a true God of heaven that needed to be trusted in and needed to be obeyed. All right. And so that's why if you read Psalms chapter 19, it says the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making the wise the simple. More to be desired that they than gold, yea, they must find gold. Sweeter also than honey, than the honeycomb. And chapter 119, which is the chapter of the commandments of God, the principles of God. So all of the true believers... Uh, rejoice in knowing that they had a God they can trust in and that they could obey the Lord. In fact, the first Psalm says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night. He shall be as a what? Tree planted by rivers of waters. Who giveth his fruit in the season, his leaf also shall not wither. And whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Will you say amen to that? So God set up a people to be a blessing to the world through that faith that saved. But on the same token, there were other religious groups, others which, which were called in those days pagans. 
And so all of these other religious groups had their belief system, etc. Like the Egyptians believed in the frogs that were gods, and they believed in lice that were gods, and they believed in all sorts of gods. However, God made it plain that there was only one true God when he gave the plagues in the land of Egypt. So, then we come all the way to the time when the people began to be called Jews. And the Bible says the Jews had what? Light and gladness and joy. This is a time when uh, they were supposed to be destroyed in the book of Esther. And fortunately, the Lord turned things around because Mordecai encouraged Esther to, to talk to the king. And the king then signed a decree that the Jews could defend themselves. And uh, fortunately, when the decree went out, many of the people of the land became what? became Jews. So now you have an, another name that's added to the faithful. So you start with Hebrew, then what? Israel, now what? Jew. And so these were the true believers of God. Though there were many other people who could have uh, joined the people of God, and some did, like Rahab and other people who uh, were not part of the genuine faith. You have Ruth, you have Tamar, you have Rahab, you have Bathsheba. All of those four ladies are named in Matthew chapter 1 as part of the remnant, which is interesting because those women were pagan women. They were not supposed to be in the line of the faithful. But God had mercy on those women, and God provided a way that those women could demonstrate that it didn't matter where you came from, you could be part of God's people. What do you say? And so it gives people hope that no matter where they come from, they can become part. Like Ruth said to her mother-in-law, where you lie, I will go. Where you go, I'm going. Where you lie, I will lie. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Rahab said to the, to the spies, well, I know that your God is a God of heaven and on earth. And there was no question in her mind that there was a true God and that she could trust in him. What do you say? And because she did put her trust in him, when the walls fell down, the only part of the city that did not fall was in Rahab's apartment on the wall. So all the wall fell, but Rahab's part of the wall did not. And it's interesting that it says that all of Rahab's family, her mother and her father, her sisters, her brothers, all that were with her were saved. So it's obvious then that anybody who wanted to be saved could be saved, but they had to become part of the church. What do you say? Now, finally, Christ comes, and he makes an interesting statement to the Samaritans. The Samaritans claim to be the genuine people, okay? It's like uh, uh, they were cousins, and so they claim to be the true people. And that's why she said to Jesus, uh, do you have a well that, like my, our father dug? Speaking about Jacob. And she didn't realize that the one that Jacob worshipped was standing right in front of her. So Jesus then said to her, you worship, you know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the, of what? Of the Jews. Did you know that? You want to be saved? You must become a Jew. 
But Paul makes it plain that it is not one who is of the flesh, that's a Jew, but one who is of the spirit. And in Romans chapter 9, it says, not because they are of Israel are they Israel. But he that is of faith. In other words, it was not the physical Jew that God was looking toward. God was looking toward the spiritual Jew. And when Jesus made that statement, he was making that statement that seemed to be arrogant to that poor Samaritan woman. What a shock, what do you say? You know not what you worship. Why, if I said to Virgil tonight, Virgil, you don't know what you're worshiping. He might be offended with me. What do you mean? You think you're, you know, it's interesting, right? It's like some people say, do you think you're holier than, than, than I am? Have you heard of the, the statement, holier than thou? Have you? And some people say, well, he, he thinks he's holier than everybody else. Well, here's the truth of the matter. And I'm, I'm, I'm being humble about this, okay? If you are a remnant, you ought to be holier than others. I only hear a few amens. What did I say? If you are a remnant, you ought to be holier. Because God said, be ye holy for I am holy. There's nothing being wrong. There's nothing wrong with being holier than others. It's the attitude that's wrong. If you become proud about the fact that God has called you, that's what happened with the Jews. They became proud that God had chosen them only and nobody else. Rather than that God chose them to be holy so that through them other people could see, hey, I can become holy too. Do you understand? It was with an appeal and with a promise that just as they became holy, others could become holy. Well, Christ then started the New Testament faith with 12 disciples. And so, in doing so, they said, who has also made us able ministers of the New Testament. The Old Testament church had finally met its fulfillment in Christ. That is to say, the, the sacrifices, the systems, ceremonial systems and all that had come to an end. And Christ then, unfortunately, had to finally make it clear that it was not physical Jews that he was looking for, but spiritual Jews. That's why he said to the Roman centurion, when the Roman centurion said, uh, my servant is sick, I'll come and take care of him. No, you don't need to come. All you have to do is say the word. For I am a, I command this soldier and say, go and he goeth. And I say to this one, come and he cometh. Just say the word then. In other words, this Roman centurion was showing that he had more trust and faith in God than all the Jews put together. And Jesus said, I have not so found such faith, no, not in Israel. That Roman centurion was basically saying to Jesus, listen, if I as a human being can order and it happens, you who are God, all you have to do is say the word and it will happen. So just say it. Don't come. Don't bother yourself. So when he went home, he found a servant healed because he trusted and believed 
that Jesus was who he claimed to be. Do you understand? So, here's what happens then. The apostolic faith is now established. Again, the same principles. Jesus said, if you love me, do what? Keep my commandments. In other words, if you have placed your trust in me, you'll demonstrate it by your obedience. By your what? By your obedience. And so, unfortunately, the church was supposed to be the ground and pillar of the what? Of the truth. And so, what would happen to that faith? Well, the Bible reveals that something would happen. Paul wrote, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock, also of your own selves, shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. And so, Jesus had given a pure faith again, but unfortunately it began to be weakened by others who came and supplanted that which Christ had given to them. So there are many splintering groups that started, unfortunately. And then Revelation chapter 12 reveals to us what actually happened through history to the genuine faith. Now I've covered many chapters in Revelation. I think, I, I hope you know that, right? How many chapters have I covered so far? Hmm? A lot, she says. I've covered chapter 1, yes? Yes or no? We covered chapter 2 and 3. We covered chapter 4, 5, and 6. We covered chapter 11, chapter 12. This is chapter 12 tonight. We did chapter 13, chapter 14. We, did, we didn't cover the plagues because not enough time. But we did chapter 18, 17, 19, 20, 21, and 22. But now we're doing chapter 12. The reason for that is because we must understand that the whole purpose of all of that is to bring us together as one. To what? To bring us together as one. So here's what would happen. According to Revelation chapter 12, the Bible says that there was a woman standing on the moon, and that woman is a church, a symbol of a church. A pure woman, clothed in righteousness, 12 stars representing the 12 messengers, of the apostolic faith, standing on the moon representing the shadows and types of the Old Testament. So the Christian church is represented by this woman. And the Bible then says that this woman finally had to flee into what? Into the wilderness. In other words, she began pure, and the devil then decided to try to uh, destroy it. But God would not allow that. And when there was a lot of apostasy that took place, a lot of separation, a lot of different doctrines and all that, those who were still genuinely faithful to that which they knew to be right and true began to be persecuted. And the only way to preserve the genuine faith was to cause it to hide. Cause it to what? To hide. That's why it says into the wilderness, where she had a place prepared of God that they should feed her 3,000, pardon me, 8,203 score days, or 1,260 days. In Bible prophecy, a day equals a what? A year. You're going to look those texts up later on. So, what happened was, in 538, a power arose in Europe that began to persecute anyone who did not go along with his new ideas and 
it amalgamated teachings of uh, paganism and Christianity mixed together. And those who knew better and knew that there was a word maintained their faith in the word, but in order to survive, they had to flee for their lives. And so in Europe then, people fled for their lives. They were persecuted for, for centuries and centuries and centuries. It is estimated that more than 150 million people were slaughtered for the crime of heresy. For what? The crime of heresy. I can tell you just one story about a certain uh, parent, parents. They taught their little girl how to say the Lord's Prayer in English, in England. And when they heard, when the church heard the little girl saying the Lord's Prayer in, Eng in English, they considered it blasphemy. What? Blasphemy. Because you were not supposed to recite something so holy in a common language. The only sacred language was Latin. So when the parents taught the little girl how to say the Lord's Prayer in English, they brought them to trial and burned them at the stake. For what crime? The Lord's Prayer in what language? In English. Terrible persecution took place, and that's why the church was in hiding. The genuine faith to survive, God protected it. It's the same thing that happened, by the way, not as long, but from the time of Malachi to the time when Christ appeared or John the Baptist appeared was about 400 years. How long? 400 years. During that time, there was no more prophecy. No more what? No more prophecy. There was silence. Why? Because they already had enough light. If they had followed the light, it would have been sufficient to bring them through the darkness. But unfortunately, they did not follow the light of the Bible. Well, these people kept the faith alive. And the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place, where she is nourished for time and times and a half a time, which is the 1260 years. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman. The word water uh, simply means people, nations, and uh, multitudes of people. That's found in, in Revelation chapter 17. So what took place then was that the devil tried to destroy the church that remained, those believers that were faithful to God, who still preserved the word of God. There were people who lost their lives because they transcribed the Bible in, into the common languages of the people. And so when the devil did that, the Bible says then that the people remained in the, the wilderness until that time period would end, which is 1798. So it's 1798, if you remember, the Catholic Church received a wound. The papacy uh, was crippled for a while. And during that time then, the, the faith that was hidden would come back out and begin to grow and develop. And now there would finally be two opposite faiths that would linger until the final conflict that's to be taking place in this earth. So it says, here's the patience of what? Of the saints. Here are they that what? And what else? There you have it. Again, the obedience demonstrated by trust or trust demonstrated by obedience. I don't know how many of you have heard the hymn, Trust and Obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus and to trust and obey. 
So, faith of Jesus and obedience with the real church. The other one is faith in Jesus or obedience. Can you see the difference? First one is faith of Jesus and obedience. The other one is faith in Jesus or obedience. There are some churches that say you don't have to worry about the law anymore. All you have to do is, is believe in Jesus. Right? You don't, don't worry about it. You're saved. Once saved, you're always saved. That's not biblical. It's not supported by the Bible. But people believe it because it's very convenient for them. But the reality is that you cannot demonstrate your faith without obedience. That's what it says in the book of James. Show me your faith without your works. And I'll show you my faith by my works. So in conclusion then. The dragon was wroth with the women. And went to make war with the remnant of her seed. Which keep the commandments of God. And have the testimony of Jesus. Now. The church would rise after 1798. And the interesting thing is this. That is after 1798, four major denominations, I mean major denominations, came up after 1798. Around 1830s, there was a, a great revival in this country. And uh, one group became what is called Adventists. The word simply means believers in the second coming. What does it mean? Believers in the second coming. Then another group came up called Jehovah Witnesses. How many of you have heard of that group? Then there was another group called Christian Science. And there's another group called the Mormons. It's interesting that they all came up about the same time after 1798. And they all had a prophet. A what? A prophet. But the way you, you have to then now, you got uh, a haystack, right? Now you need to figure out which one is the true one. Because obviously, all of them cannot be true. There can only be how many? One true. And all of them declare to be the true one. So the way to determine is by the Bible. What do you say? So, a simple test, it must have roots in the what? In the Old Testament. It has to have the dual characteristics of genuine faith and obedience. It must have gotten into hiding for how long? 1260 years. Then it must come back out after 1798. So any denomination that was established prior to 1798 cannot qualify as the church that was in hiding. Did you hear what I said? Because it had to come up after 1798. Not before. Then it must come back after that. It must teach the entire Bible. How much? The entire Bible. Old and New Testament. It must lead people back to the God of the Bible. Who is that? It is Jesus Christ. It must recapture the pure apostolic faith and teachings. It must obey how many? All of the Ten Commandments. Including the Sabbath. It must be a worldwide mission driven movement. According to Revelation 14. It must encourage total consecration of mind, body, and heart to God. It must warn against the beast, his image, and his marks. It makes a final appeal to accept the truth. It invites others to join the remnant and believes in the spirit of prophecy. So, 
Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Just a simple acid test. Does your church harmonize with the Ten Commandments? If it doesn't, then you have to raise a red flag. You see what I'm saying? Yes or no? That's why the devil made it his effort to attack the law of God by either saying that it's no longer binding, you don't have to keep it, you don't have to worry about it, or changing it in such a way that it does not really reflect the original Ten Commandments that God gave. And so there is a denomination that has done that. Then there are many denominations that have done the other. It doesn't matter anymore. Jesus nailed the law to the cross. Jesus did away with the law. But it, it, it contradicts the very essence of the gospel. And that is that the power of grace is given to help the sinner overcome sin and become obedient to God. Without the grace of God, we would all remain wretched sinners. But through the grace of God, we can be overcomers, what do you say? Amen. And that then enables us to become part of the remnant. Of the what? Remnant. So, how many of you want to be part of that remnant? I want to be part of that remnant. But I must accept what God says. Faith of Jesus, and what else? And the commandments of God. We must be willing to live in harmony with that. This message was made available by the Dundas Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit their YouTube page, Dundas Seventh-day Adventist Church. And the law is right And it's written by God in stone The law is love And the law is life And it's written by God in stone I will follow His commandments I'll abide in My delight It's written down in stone Oh, it's written down in stone The law is holy, the law is pure And it's written by God in stone The law Faithful forever sure And it's written by God in stone I will follow His command
Stone from 3ABN's album Pillars of Our Faith, Volume 1. Coming up next, We Need to Know by Clearly Hins.
Welcome to God's Favourite Shepherds, a collection of 39 short stories rounding out the lives of mainly lesser-known Bible characters, with many of the stories ending with a short quiz. Listen now to the author of God's Favourite Shepherds, Bill Ackland. Today's story is entitled, briefly, A Twin. Doubting is dangerous. And this story is based on Matthew chapter 10 and John chapter 11 and 20. My young life was typical of a boy growing up in Jewish society. I was one of twin boys. However, it is not my purpose here to tell you about my brother, but about someone more important than a brother a boy could ever have. I was born in the time when many scholars of the sacred scriptures said that the Messiah was due to appear. This brought great joy to many, but did not please the religious leaders of our day. They certainly did not want to lose their power, which is what would have happened if the Messiah came and did all that was prophesied of him. And then one day, one fateful day, I came across a man who was preaching about the kingdom of heaven. I was drawn to his message and particularly to him. I don't know what it was, for in some respects he was much like the other men of our time, but there was something different about him. It seemed that the light of heaven was in his eyes, and as he looked at the people, you could tell that he loved them. Thousands flocked about him every day, and one day when I was thinking deeply about the things he had told us, I suddenly realised 
He was looking at me. He said, Thomas, I want you to follow me. I forgot all about what I was engaged in and responded willingly to his invitation to be his disciple. I did not know what was before me, but from my knowledge of the scriptures, I knew that this man was indeed the Messiah. Early in his ministry, Jesus Christ, for that is who he was, called other men to follow him, just as he had called me. We listened intently to what he had to say. We were amazed that we had never heard these words before or even thought about the principles of his teaching, for they were expressed in a new and refreshing way. It was like a cool evening breeze from the Sea of Galilee flowing over us and banishing the oppressive heat of the day. There is so much I could tell you about life with Jesus that it wasn't an easy life we lived. We counted it as nothing compared to the honour we had of being in his presence and listening to his words of life. We hoped that his ministry would continue for many years, but we knew something dreadful was ahead of our master. We tried to dismiss what he said from our minds, hoping that things would get better and better. One evening, when we celebrated the Passover, he told us that one of us would betray him to the authorities that very night. I cannot bear to think of how events unfolded that night and the following day, when our hearts felt like they had been torn out of our bodies. Our much-loved Saviour was tortured and then crucified. He died on a dreadful Roman cross. I was naturally of a doubtful disposition, so I found it very difficult to understand that we would see our dear Lord again, even though he had said that he would rise from the grave. So when the other disciples told me that he had appeared to them in a locked room the very night of his resurrection and had spoken to them when I was absent, I just could not believe it. I told them that I would not believe it until I had placed my hands in the wounds in, in his body. What a surprise was in store for me eight days later. We're all meeting together. I was present this time. Jesus suddenly appeared amongst us. After greeting us with words of peace, he turned to me and invited me to put my finger into his wounds in his hands and to place my hand in the wound in his side. He then told me not to doubt, but believe. This cut right to my heart, for I knew that I did not have to touch his wounds, and right there I bowed before him and said, My Lord, my God. My mind then flashed back to the occasion when I had given voice to my doubts. On one occasion he had told us that he was going to prepare a place for us in the mansions of God, and that he would come back and take us to be with him. At that time I could not understand what he had said, so I said, Lord, we have no idea where you are going, so how will we be able to get to that place? And then... When we were about to go with him to Bethany several days after Lazarus had died, I said to the other disciples, we may as well go and die with him there. I was sure the authorities had set a trap for our master and that would be the end of his ministry and the end of our lives. However, everything changed for me when Jesus invited me to touch his wounds. Never again did I doubt that our precious Saviour 
had risen. In a few weeks, we saw him ascend to heaven and we heard the reassuring words of the angels who had come down to accompany him. They told us this very same Jesus would come back again one day in a similar manner as we had just seen him ascend into the clouds. This greatly encouraged us, and after the Holy Spirit descended upon us at Pentecost, we were changed men. We went to all the places he had told us to go to, preaching the gospel as we went. I particularly like the challenge of going to the furthest corners of the earth. Perhaps I could do that. Maybe I would even go to that far distant land of India that was part of the Persian Empire hundreds of years ago. Whatever was ahead of me, I was determined never to doubt my Saviour's words again. You may know me as Thomas, which is my name in Aramaic. I was one of the twelve disciples. I was also called Didymus, which is my name in Greek. Both names mean twin. You've been listening to God's Favoured Shepherds, a book with 39 short stories rounding out the lives of mainly lesser-known Bible characters. If you have any comments or questions, or to obtain a copy of this book, give us a call within Australia on 02-4973-3456 or send an email to radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. We'd love to hear from you. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.